Good morning again. My name is Elliot um, Cherry, and I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to be with you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we would love to meet you. We've got some visitor cards in the back or upstairs in the coffee table um, in that room. And um, please come find me. Come find Daryl or Matt or anybody you see. Um, we would love to get to know you and help you get plugged in here. Uh, what are we doing in these uh, few weeks of Advent? Advent is historically the time in the Christian calendar that we pause between Thanksgiving and Christmas, those four Sundays. Uh, and we uh, typically, most churches in the world do this, um, follow this church calendar of pausing during the, those four Sundays and remembering and retelling the Christmas story. We remember and we retell the story of Jesus' birth. We remember and we retell all the narrative that surrounded um, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus. Uh, that is known as the Advent. That's why we call this Advent season. But Advent is not a Bible word. Advent is just a word that came from the ancient world that simply means the coming, the arrival, the appearing. And so famous people, powerful people, uh, noble people would Advent among peoples uh, often. And so uh, this idea that got tied to, hey, when you know an Advent is coming, of a king or a dignitary or an army, when you know the advent is coming, you, you wait on that differently. You behave differently in that, in that time of anticipation and waiting. And so we call the coming, the arrival, the appearing of Jesus at Christmas, the first advent. That's why we call this advent season. And so we tend to retell the story, but if all we do is reminisce and get sentimental about the Christmas story, we've actually missed a huge reason why we do this. Because we're not meant just to be sentimental people. That's not what the Bible uh, longs to see in God's people. It's just people who are full of sentiment and reminiscence. What we want to do in this season is we want to remember and retell and refamiliarize ourselves with the first Advent story. But that's only because we long then to borrow the hope of that, borrow the assurance of that, that as we, God's people, wait and look and hope for his second Advent we are given a newfound strength to do so because here's how this works. We say to ourselves, gosh, Jesus, come quickly. Come and restore, come and, come and renew, come and make things right again. Come and relieve this ache in my soul. We, that will happen when you advent among us again. It's hard to believe sometimes that you're gonna do it. It's hard to believe sometimes that you're gonna return, but maybe we can remember that it will happen because you advented once already. So we get hope for the second advent as we remember and retell the story of his first advent. So that's what we're doing here. We're retelling and remembering the story of Jesus' birth so that we would dare to hope again in the second advent, the second appearing, the second arrival of Jesus. So we're doing that this year by looking at stories surrounding the first advent, stories of people who were close to the narrative, close to the story. What kind of reactions did people have to the news of the coming king, Jesus? We've looked at Herod, who was angry. Herod was threatened by the coming of King Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the wise men, these mysterious magi from the east, who rejoiced at the news of the coming king. This week, we're going to look at Joseph, the husband of Mary, um, and how he encountered the news of the coming king, Jesus. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 on your phones or on your actual good old trusty Bibles. If not, um, th this text will be on the screen for you to follow along. This comes from Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18. It says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. It's like we said, we are in a season that is uh, really easy to be certainly the most sentimental of all seasons as we turn and remember the Christmas story and the manger scenes and the lights and reminiscing about um, Christmases in the past and the, 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 the flavor that the season brings and the scents and the customs and the traditions. And so we can get sentimental in our hearts as we turn and then read this Christmas story, which is anything but sentimental. It's easy to think of Joseph, noble Joseph, calm and peaceful Joseph in the manger scenes with his rosy cheeks and he's so calm and steady by Mary's side and he was this man of, of great strength and this man of great um, power and dignity and, and he was and the Bible says Joseph was a good man and we're gonna talk about that. But what happens when we kind of turn and remember the story of Joseph in this sentimental way of gentle and quiet and peaceful Joseph if we neglect the chaos that was going on in Joseph's soul and story at the time, if we neglect to talk about the chaos of Joseph's life, then we miss the power and the splendor and the majesty of what's going on in these eight verses. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. That's like engagement on steroids. So uh, the ancient Israelite, the ancient Jew would have three stages to a marriage. The first was the engagement. This is the arrangement side. This is when the father of the groom pays a dowry to the father of the bride and the parents have, have played matchmaker. But there was this second step where the two individuals, they didn't have to go through with it. Now it was rare that they didn't, but they didn't have to go through with making this engagement a real official thing. That step was called the betrothal. And that's when the, the, the boy and the girl would come together and they would get a first look, so to speak. They would get a, to check it out. And, and they would then say, they would confirm in that moment, yes, I want to go through with this. From that point on, they were betrothed. Now, 99 times out of 100, that would happen. Rarely did you show up and go, don't really like what I see here. I'm gonna find something else. So it was mostly that that would be how the storyline played out. So Joseph and Mary are in this very normal, very natural stage of our parents matched us and now we've chosen each other. We are betrothed. But betrothal was such a serious commitment. It was a legal commitment that if you were gonna break off a betrothment, you actually had to go to the, the court. You had to go to the, 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 the powers that be and get a legal document to break off a, a, betrothing, a betrothal. It required a divorce to break off those that were betrothed. And so Joseph is betrothed to Mary. He said, I've chosen you, our parents chose us, but now I've chosen you too and I want you to be my wife and we're gonna do this life together. We're gonna raise our kids together and we're gonna have this uh, room off of my father's house to raise our own family here and it's gonna be great. And they're all writing the, the, the fairy tale and how this would go down. They're, they're teenagers, like 12 to 14 at the most that this would have been the age. And this is happening. They are legally bound to each other in the betrothal stage before the actual wedding day. And Mary shows up pregnant. And Joseph knows he didn't sleep with her. And here's what makes it even more hairy, uh, is that Mary comes to him and says, hey, I know that I'm showing right now. I know that, yeah, I know that I am, I am with child, but you gotta believe me. I, I didn't sleep around on you. The Holy Spirit did this to me. 
Okay, in, in terms of like redemptive history and the revelation of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, at this point in history, they don't know who that is. So Joseph's going, now who did what to you? Like, I've never heard of that member of the Trinity. We don't even know what the Trinity is. Like, we don't even know, what are you, what are you talking about? And up in this point in history, no one has played the Holy Spirit knocked me up card. Like, no, no one's tried to get out of the pregnancy by saying, yeah, it was, I know you're not gonna believe it, but actually the Holy Spirit did this to me. So no, no one, like Joseph's not going, oh, that makes total sense. Like, I totally believe you. That would be the rational thing to think that if you're pregnant and I didn't sleep with you, that this Holy Spirit did. Like, I don't know what you want me to do here, Mary. And so Joseph had every right to call the wedding off. In fact, what Mary has actually just had happen to her by no doing of her own, she was chosen for this by the Lord. But what has just happened to Mary is she has just become disqualified for marriage because what she's taken away from her husband, and this was a huge deal in this culture and in this system, she has taken away from her husband the ability to consummate the marriage. And so Joseph had every right to call off the marriage. He had every right to punish her publicly, to shame her. In fact, and this was rare, but he did have the legal right to have her executed. And so all this is on the table. The disgrace that's been brought to Mary and her family. She shows up pregnant to Thanksgiving, like, hey, I'm sorry. This is, this is, this is what's going on. And then Joseph has to go back and tell his parents, who also paid the dowry for Mary and emptied their savings to go, we want this to be your bride. And he's got to come home and say, hey, it's, it's off. The public fallout of this, the disgrace of this, the shame of this, the pain of this, the betrayal of this is all, is all on the table for Joseph. But we're told Joseph was a just and noble man and he decides to do the compassionate thing. I chose to love you, Mary, and I love you, but you broke my heart, but I'm not gonna shame you. I'm not gonna drag you through the public sphere and make your life any more difficult than it already has become. I'm going to divorce you quietly. I'm not gonna humiliate you. And so we can kind of hear that and go, okay, that's, that's kind of the first part of the story. Mary shows up showing, and now this is her explanation to Joseph, and now he's going, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not going to, this is not what I wanted to happen, but this is what we're going to do. I'm, I'm just going to divorce you quietly, and we won't make a big stir about it, and we'll just have to go back to our families and kind of face the wrath there, but I'm not going to drag you through the public mud. But we're given, we can kind of imagine Joseph in that place and think of him uh, still in this calm, peaceful light of just doing the noble and just and right, compassionate thing. And we can miss some of the emotion that he's feeling. Verse 20. Will you throw verse 20 up there for me, Courtney? Verse 20 says this, and this gives us a little clue into how Joseph was feeling. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. That word right there, considered, it's a really interesting Greek word, the original language of the New Testament. He considered these things. The root word of that Greek word is anger, wrath, fury. In fact, it's the same Greek word that's used in the very next chapter when Herod hears about Jesus' birth and Herod decides to commit genocide in Bethlehem to kill all the babies. Herod was feeling the rage. This word is used about him. Joseph's feeling the rage. He's going, this is not what I wanted to happen. I'm pondering it. I'm considering it. I'm holding it in the deepest place in me. I have thoughts about this, Mary. I've got feelings about this. I'm not this robot that just automatically does the compassionate thing. This is, this is killing me. I've got the same amount of rage as a king who's about to commit genocide. I'm feeling the feels on this. That's how Joseph's doing when the angel shows up to him in a dream. And so kind of knowing where Joseph's at on this journey when the angel shows up, let's rehear the angel's words to him. Go back to verse 20 and 21. It says this, 
This is what the angel says to him. Rehear this in the context of how Joseph's feeling and all the public and, and fear and shame and anger and betrayal. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, the first thing to note is when he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, he doesn't say, don't be afraid of me. Joseph, I know I'm an intimidating like creature from another realm. Don't be afraid of me. Don't be af- the, the scariest thing in your life not right now, Joseph, is the thought of marrying Mary. What was he afraid of? Oh, I don't know, having to go back home and say, hey, mom and dad, I know that you have said to me, I will not bring shame on this family and marry this woman. I'm gonna do it anyway. And oh, by the way, I still live with you. And so now I'm gonna bring this woman into our home who's brought public shame and disgrace onto our family. And we've got to explain to all the in-laws that, hey, by the way, Joseph is gonna marry Mary and he's gonna believe the story that she told that the Holy Spirit knocked her up and that this, we're just gonna roll with this and I want you guys to all be okay with that. And when they look at me and say, what are you talking about? You crazy son, how in the world do you expect us to walk through this with you? He would go, no, no, it's cool, mom and dad. An angel told me in a dream. Like that's my justification for staying in this is that a dream that no one else was present for, an angel made it really clear this is what I'm supposed to do. Please hear the the chaos of this, the, the pain of this, the confusion of this, the questions in this, the sadness in this. And the angel literally shows up and says, I want you to stay with Mary. Essentially what the angel is saying to Joseph is this. I know your world has been blown up, that your fiance is pregnant. And here's what I'm telling you to do, Joseph. I'm I'm actually calling you to stay in that chaos. And actually, you're not gonna understand any of this. You don't understand any of this. And I'm calling you to stay in that in which you don't understand. This chaos that Joseph is in, please understand that even when the angel shows up to him and tells him to stay in the chaos, stay in the mess, stay in the confusion, the, the angel doesn't give him any circumstantial explanation that would rationalize this in his mind. The angel doesn't say, hey, Joseph, I want you to stay with Mary, and let me tell you how all this is gonna work out, and let me give you the details that when you get to this intersection, turn left and not right, and everything's gonna, let me show you how all these paths collide into a peaceful place. No, 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 the, the angel shows up and says, I want you to stay with her, I want you to bear the public shame with her, I want you to stay in the mess with her, I want you to face her family and your family, and here's, here's the problem, Joseph, I'm not explaining to you any of this. I just want you to do this. Oh, and by the way, when we're in our pain and our chaos and our fear and our confusion, one of the things that is really helpful for us is when a friend can come along and say, hey, I totally get what you're going through. I totally understand that I've been there too. Guess how many people could come along Joseph and go, man, I totally get it, bro. Zero. So the angel is signing him up for a more isolated life. Your confusion, not gonna explain it. All this mystery, not gonna explain it. Not gonna show you how all this works out. And oh, by the way, you're gonna be really alone when you walk this journey. Because it's, 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 it's a, a journey of people not understanding why the heck you're doing what you're doing. And oh, by the way, the only thing you're going to be able to tell people as to why you're doing this is that an angel told you in a dream. That's your best reason to stay in this. Like, do you know how many counselors would look at Joseph and would say, I understand nothing. I've gotten zero of my questions answered. My fiance is pregnant and I'm just going to stay with her. And the counselor would go, maybe you've got a problem, Joe. 
Maybe like you're too codependent. Maybe you don't know how to have boundaries with other people. Maybe, maybe you don't need to stay in this marriage. Maybe this is unhealthy for you, bro. And the angel's going, I just want you to stay in it. Not gonna answer any questions. Stay in a faithful, stay in a loyal, stay in a patient, graceful way with Mary. So if you were Joseph and your life was being blown up like this and the angel just detonated another bomb, how do you think you would respond? And then, because we're on this side of the, of the, of the story, we can kind of see how, um, we basically get to see all that the angel didn't tell Joseph about. Meaning this, we know how the pregnancy and the delivery and the first several years of Jesus' life are gonna go, the, the years that Joseph is alive for. If you keep reading, you know that they get, to, they get to Bethlehem for the census that Joseph has to travel by donkey with a nine-month pregnant wife to get to Bethlehem, and there's no room, in the end, no room at the end for them, and they've got to stay with some family in, a, in an extra room where the animals live, and they're going to deliver their baby with animals around, and then some weird wise men are going to show up, and these dirty shepherds are going to show up. They're going to start worshiping this baby in front of you, and oh, by the way, the wise men are going to bring treasure chests of gold for you, and you're going to have all these people worshiping your newborn baby, and then the Next week, you're going to have to get up and flee to Egypt because there's going to be genocide happening in Bethlehem and you're going to have to go to another country as a refugee where you don't speak the language and you don't have a job and you're going to raise your family there, Joe. That's the chaos that the angel knows is coming for Joseph and he doesn't tell him any of that. This is insanity. <laughs> like this, this is so chaotic. This is not gentle, peaceful Joseph by Mary's side in the manger with rosy cheeks. One pastor at Midtown this week joked, I bet Joseph was messing his pants in the manger. Like, what is happening to my life? Like, what is happening? I don't know what's going on. This is insanity that you want me to stay here. And yet, into this tumult, into this mess, the angel says, Joseph, I want you to stay. I want you to walk faithfully. I want you to walk peacefully. I want you to walk gracefully and stay with Mary. And here's the crazy thing. He does it. He stays with Mary. He commits to Mary. He walks with her through every step of the chaos of this story. He stays. Not only does he not have her punished, even more profoundly, he doesn't leave her side. One commentator I read this week said that when Joseph was called to the census from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, his like, family's hometown, he had to go down there, um, Mary didn't have to go with him. And how many of us in that situation would be like, Mary, sorry, I gotta go out of town on this work trip. They're calling for this, you know, sorry. I know you're, I know you're about to pop, but family's kind of a mess. I'm gonna go get away for a few days. <laughs> Like, I'm gonna go do the census thing kind of by myself. You don't wanna go, do you? It's gonna be hard on the donkey, right? No, like, Joseph will not leave her. Joseph says, you're coming with. Like, I am not letting you spend one second apart from me. I will bear your shame with you. I will carry your burden with you. I will be with you. He does it. So here's the question. How does Joseph do it? How does his anger and confusion and his questions and the chaos get transformed into this beautiful loyalty, beautiful faithfulness, this staying strength to stay in the chaos and not abandon her? Where does he get the staying power? So two observations from the passage that, that answer that question. Where did Joseph get the staying power? Two things this passage shows us that gave Joseph the ability and the strength to faithfully and gracefully walk with Mary. 
One thing that the passage will make very clear is that this strength to stay does not come from within himself. There is no mention of bootstraps. There is no mention of making it hard, or uh, working yourself harder and work harder, work harder, work harder until you get it. There is none of that talk. What gives Joseph the ability to stay in the chaos comes from the two names that are given to the baby in Mary's belly. Two names given in this passage that Joseph receives, two names for his baby. He doesn't even get to name his son, by the way, which would have been a huge deal. Two names given to this baby. And these two names tell us two things about the Lord. They tell us two things about the baby in the belly. They tell us what God is always doing, and they tell us who God always is. The names given to the baby tell us what God is always doing and who God always is. And if we will lean into the power and beauty of these names too, it could make us, it could transform us, just like it did Joseph. Joseph was just like us. It could make us faithful, graceful stayers too. Now I have to give this asterisk, I have to give this caveat, and I'm sad that I even have to. Being a faithful, graceful stayer in the chaos does not mean staying in abuse. The Bible's very clear about that, that if you are in an abusive relationship, if you are in an abusive situation, this story is not meant to transform your ability to stay in the abuse. This is meant to stay in the chaos of the confusion, the chaos of the pain, to lean in and stay faithfully in a way that would not make sense unless you know these two names. So the first name given to this baby in the passage is the most well-known. Give him the name Jesus. Look in verse 21 with me again. It says, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so again, we, we, we've talked about the storyline of Joseph's chaos. We've talked about the storyline of this insanity that culturally speaking, it would be tough to describe what Joseph has just been enlisted into and called into by the angel. There are going to be unanswerable questions. There are going to be rumors spreading. There is going to be shame hurled on them. It is a mess. And remember, the Lord doesn't give Joseph any idea how all this will play out. Zero clue about how the circumstances will play out. He gives them zero details about the facts of the situation and the story. And hey, just wait three years and it's gonna get really easy. Or hey, in three months, everybody's gonna totally understand what you're going through and they're all gonna get it. He gives them none of that. God doesn't tell them that the public shame won't be intense. God doesn't tell them that everyone will totally understand. God does not tell Joseph that this is not going to be excruciatingly painful which is what we want. God, when I pray to you, come and tell me that all the things I'm afraid of aren't gonna happen. God doesn't do that for Joseph. He actually goes to a deeper place than that. That feels like the deepest place in us when we're in chaos. Just tell me, just tell me how all these details are gonna work out in this situation. Give me, roll the tape for three more months and show me how all the things I'm afraid of over the next three months aren't gonna come true. God doesn't do that. God gives him a name. So what are these places for you? What, what, are, what are these places where, where the unknown seems unbearable? Like there, there is a situation in your life where like, I just don't have any answers for it. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to justify it. What are the places in your life where there are loads of anxiety and stress, which always has to do with the future? Where are the places where you are anxious? Where are the places 
where you can't see right now, like Joseph, you can't see what God's doing. That if someone came to you and said, hey, you're a Christian, right? What's God doing in your life? You would go, I, I have no idea what he's doing in this mess. I have no idea. God has given me zero clarity on what he's doing in this story. Maybe the simplest way to find this place in your life for us post-enlightenment, post-modern thinkers, what are the places in your life that you just don't understand? I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand why this didn't happen. I don't understand why this is still going on. I don't understand it. What are the places that you don't understand? Because whatever that place is, here's, here's what typically happens on even a subconscious level. Whatever the places are where the chaos is too much, the mess is too much, I don't know what God's doing, I don't understand it, I'm too anxious about it, we begin to then write a story. We, be, we begin then to write a narrative about how those storylines will end. We write the end of the story into existence. And here's what we typically say, this is not gonna end well. And you can say, you know, like, you know, pessimists just say, you know, I'm not a pessimist, I'm just a realist. That's not what we're talking about. That, that, that what, what tends to happen in that, in the, in the narrative writing about the mess, in the narrative writing about the pain, we tend to jump to the end of the story because all we can see is the places where the pain is spiraling out. All we can see is the places where the confusion doesn't have answers and we spiral that story out and we can't see. There's no way that God, you could make anything good out of this. All I can see is the spiral. All I can see is the chaos. And so there's no way this ends well. So we write the end of the story. And so the angel comes to Joseph and here's what he says to him. Hey, Joseph, I know this is incredibly difficult. I know you don't understand this. I know you can't see how this all works together. But let me tell you, I want you to call his name Jesus. Because let me tell you what's going on behind the scenes of your mess. God's at work. That's what he says here. Joseph, I know this is chaos. Joseph, I know this is painful. Joseph, I know this is, this is not what you wanted. But the baby in Mary's womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit and you will call his name Jesus because he is going to save God's people from their sin. Hey, Joseph, in the midst of your chaos, like in the midst of it, above it, around it, and underneath it, like you can only see this storyline of what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on all around it and above it and beneath it. God is at work, and what kind of work is God doing? He's saving the world. And so you've written a story, Joseph, about how this storyline is gonna end because that's what we all do in our chaos. You think this is how all this chaos spirals into nothingness and more pain and it's gonna end poorly. Joseph, I'm telling you behind the scenes, undetected, you can't even see it. You can't even make sense of it. What I'm telling you is that's not the biggest story that's happening right now. The bigger story that's going on, the real storyline that's going on is that I'm moving to save the world. I'm moving to heal the world. I'm moving to restore the world. Because Joseph, that's what I do. That's what I'm always doing. That's the work that I'm always up to. So are we always told why God allows the chaos? No. Are we always given windows from heaven's perspective as to how all of the chaos will find resolution? No. Are we always told how to navigate the chaos with crystal clarity and wisdom and discernment? No. 
But what the angel just told Joseph is the same thing that the Lord is telling you in your chaos that you can't handle or the chaos you can't navigate. Here's what the Lord's saying. I'm at work in your chaos. And my work is always bent on saving my people. What's God doing in your chaos? He's saving the world. Always. Even if your circumstances don't feel like it, always in your chaos, Joseph, I'm moving to save. And you may not be able to see how all the roads of providence work out and how this meets that and how, oh, if that's what he's doing here, then I bet that's what he's doing. You don't have that vantage point. All you have is your chaos, like Joseph. And what the angel comes to tell him is, I know this is all you can see. Let me give you a bigger storyline than the one that you've written. You can't see how the narrative all comes together, but behind the scenes of all chaos is one who is above the chaos and who can and will turn every sorrow into a joy. That's what the angel just told him. That he's the kind of God that uses tears of grief and loss and confusion to water a garden of beauty and life. That I'm the God that almost always without even being detected and always working, I'm always moving, I'm always orchestrating to save the world. I wanna apply this to your life in a, in a seemingly painful way. But this is, this is what the name Jesus actually means and the fact that he gives him this name in the middle of Joseph's storm is, is even more applicable to our chaos. Please hear this. That on the worst day of your life, God's at work. God's at work in every divorce. God's at work in every cancer diagnosis. God's at work in every death. God's at work in every failure. Every blown up family gathering, every wayward child, every fight you've had with your spouse, every breakup you've gone through, every change of plans this week, every awkward interaction, every sin addiction, God is at work. And what's he doing? What's God always doing? He's always moving to save the world. He's always moving to heal the world. Call him Jesus. Name him Jesus. Because this is what I'm doing behind your chaos, Joseph. I'm healing the world. I know your life is being blown up right now, Joseph. I know your life is being blown up right now, Midtown 12 South. And me telling you this doesn't make your life any less chaotic but it's telling you that the chaos of your life isn't writing the story. He is. And the kind of story that he writes is one where he always saves his bride, always. Call him Jesus, because your chaos will not tell you, Joseph, your chaos will not write the story, Joseph, that I'm moving to save. But call him Jesus, because this is what I'm doing in your chaos. I'm saving, I'm healing, I'm redeeming. And so the name Jesus zooms us out from our chaos and it says, this is the kind of story he's always been writing. This is the kind of story he's writing right now. And the name Jesus gives us this macro perspective of the narrative of the cosmos and tells us there's something bigger than the mess and the chaos that we can see. Something else is happening than what you can tell. There's a bigger story at play. So the name Jesus gives us this comfort from the macro perspective. The other name given here to the baby gives us comfort on the micro, on the personal level. 
Look again with me at verse 22 and 24. 22 through 24 says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. So only three times in scripture uh, is the name Emmanuel used, but yet it's perhaps one of the most powerful names of God in the whole Bible. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. I had a dear friend this week say, I think God's favorite preposition is with. And did you hear how that verse answered, or that verse ended? At the very end of all this, verse 24, he hears, call his name, call his name Emmanuel, for he is God with us. And the very next line is this, Joseph stays with Mary. He got up and did it. So he has the dream, he has the vision from the angel, and then what does he do when he gets up from that place? He has the strength to stay with Mary. And the only way Joseph could stay with Mary was because the assurance, not that he understood all that God was doing in the macro level, what really gave Joseph the strength to stay with Mary was that God was with him. Mary, I can stay with you because my God is with me. My God is not leaving me and so I cannot leave you. Joseph has no clue how any of this will turn out. He has no idea how hot this fire is about to get. I heard a pastor say one time before the birth of a firstborn child, you have no idea the helicopter blade you're about to walk into. That's what's going on for Joseph. He's about to have his firstborn. Joseph, you have no idea the checks you're gonna have to write. And I don't just mean financial. You have no idea how excruciating this is going to be. You don't have a clue what you're walking into. You're gonna be so far in over your head and oh yeah, by the way, no one can walk the road with you because no one's gonna understand what you're going through. They're all gonna think you're crazy. They're not gonna believe you and your visions. They don't even know who the Holy Spirit is yet. You will not survive this from a social standpoint, Joseph. And yet he's given the promise that in the midst of all of that, God will be with him. So he can turn and walk into the chaos Joseph stays with Mary only after hearing that God will be staying with him. Joseph, you will never be alone. I know that if, if, you, if you've been numbed or naive to pain and chaos, then hearing that God is with you in the chaos maybe sounds trite, maybe sounds... Um, Trivial, God's with us. That's what Christian people say. Hey, I know you're going through awful things, but God is with you. Like it can sound, it can sound so dismissive, but I want you to know that the way that the Bible talks about this, the way that I have experienced this, is that God with us is critical and captivating when we are in chaos. It's not trite, it's not trivial, it's actually speaking to the deepest place in you when you walk through the storm. I read this week a quote from Yale Divinity Professor Miroslav Volf, it was a quote from his in another book. But he said, those that observe suffering, like those that just kind of see suffering in like the theoretical sense and see suffering, 
Those that observe suffering are tempted to reject God. Like, I see this suffering, and so how can this suffering exist if God exists? So let me just stand back from the suffering and and comment on it and criticize it and make declarations about God from observing the suffering. But then he says this, those who observe suffering are tempted to reject God, but those who have experienced suffering oftentimes cannot give up on God. Like, it may sound trite and trivial in a theoretical argumentative sense, but what if this wasn't a debate and what if this is what you needed to be sustained? That those who have actually experienced deep chaos and deep suffering, they can't go anywhere else than the promise, God is with me. God has not left me. And the reason this is so powerful is that if you've been in the dark night of the soul, then you know this. The reason why God's promised presence with us in our agony, the reason why that is so crucial for us in our chaos is that when our trauma hits, our chaos hits, it rears its head against, against us, the, the, the mess that we're in, the, the unknowns, all the confusion, when that hits, here's what happens. We tell ourselves a story about ourselves. One thing we do when the, when the trauma and the chaos and the mess hits is we write a story about the cosmos. There's no way this doesn't spiral out of control. But here's what else. We write a story. We assign meaning. We write a narrative about what our suffering means about us. And here's what our stories that we write about ourselves tell us is that we will be utterly abandoned and isolated forever. And if you don't know that that's what your trauma and your suffering and your mess is telling you, then you are moving too fast to listen to what the voices are saying to you. That is what we are so tempted to believe when the darkness hits is that I am all alone in this darkness. I will be utterly abandoned and isolated in this darkness. Literally at the brain level, my my trauma and my pain literally at the brain level disintegrate me. It's why good therapy and good counseling literally like reintegrates us. It helps like rewire our brains from the trauma. It literally disintegrates me and in my disintegrated state, the only thing you and I and the human brain can believe in the disintegrated state is that I am utterly alone and I will stay utterly abandoned. You cannot believe that the narrative is gonna be good for you and that God loves you and that it's all gonna work out in the end. You cannot believe that in your disintegrated state. It's not possible. Our deepest fear is that we will be abandoned and isolated and the chaos of our life tells us that our greatest fears are coming true. You are all alone. You are all alone in your pain and you will always be all alone in your pain. You will hear, we will hear the whisper of the gloom that says to you, you are not enough to walk through this and no one is coming to your side. You don't have what it takes to walk through this sadness. You don't have what it takes to walk through this chaos. You are not enough. You are inadequate. You cannot do it. And the darkness is confirming that in our disintegration. And here's what Emmanuel is telling you. You will never be alone. You're not alone and no matter what pain or loss or mess or fire you are in and what it's telling you, even if the chaos is from your own making, even if you made the mess, here's what God says to you. Here's what Emmanuel says to you. I'm with you. You do not face it alone and you have never cried a tear in isolation. 
Book of Psalms says that God's got a bottle with your name on it, and guess what he catches in it? All of your tears. He's close enough to you while you weep to actually like catch the tears coming off and says, I've got them. They're like a treasure to me because I'm with you when you weep. Your God's name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. No other religion, no other philosophy will give you a God that comes anywhere close to staying with you in your mess. Any other way of thinking, any other uh, creed, any other philosophy will tell you, you have to get you out of the mess before anything divine will come to you. And Emmanuel says, no, 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 I've come to be with you. And so here's the complete picture that we see in the life of Joseph and what these names given to the baby in Mary's womb, what they do to him. Here's, here's, what, here's the story of God in the middle of Joseph's chaos, in the middle of yours. Jesus, our Emmanuel, has come to save. And so at the macro level, he's writing a different story than the one that you've written. And at the micro level, he has not left you, even for a moment. If we catch a glimpse of that, if we fall into the power of those names we will have the courage to stay faithfully, to stay beautifully, to stay gracefully in the chaos of our lives, to not abandon those near us, to not, to not run away from the pain, but to actually stay in the pain because Jesus will save us in the end and we are not alone. Even when it rips your heart out and even when it blows up your life, your Jesus has come to save you and he's with you. Let's pray. Jesus, um, our Emmanuel, we all write stories about the world and about ourselves when we're in pain. And so would you not just re rewrite the story, but use the story to rewire us, reform us as those that like Joseph can get up stand up in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the anger, in the middle of the confusion, in the middle of the sadness, and stay in it. Jesus, our Emmanuel, make yourself palpable to us now, we pray by your spirit as we close this service. It's in your name that we ask all this. Jesus, amen.